Today we're going to continue our study of covenant. So before we get started, if you have any questions from last week that you would like to raise before we do a little review and then get into new material, now would be a good time to ask those questions. Well, as we go along, if you, yes, Royce. Could you give a thumbnail definition of a dispensation versus the allegory of a, the other thing that you're talking about? Well, a dispensation is an era or a period of time. Okay? We're going to talk about the difference between dispensationalism and covenantalism. All right, so I think that will answer your question. On the difference between a dispensation and a allegory. All right? One thing I want to draw your attention to first is uh, if you want more information on this, this is an easy way to do it. You can do it when you're walking or driving or cooking or sewing or studying or all kinds of activities. Go to shepherdsconference.org. That's the website. Click on media. Scroll down to SC Shepherds Conference 2007. And click on general session number one. So it's the very first one there. Very first one there. The title of that sermon by John MacArthur is Sovereign Election, Israel, and Eschatology. It might be the longest sermon he's ever preached at a shepherd's conference. It's one hour, 19 minutes, and some seconds long. But it is fabulous. It's fabulous. Uh, he talks a lot about the covenants because the covenants are involved in sovereign election, Israel, and last things. He talks a lot about the covenants. He talks about... Uh, Covenant theology, dispensationalism, how they all work into that. Uh, it's just a tremendous, tremendous instructive <coughs> sermon. So the subject line is Sovereign Election, Israel, and Eschatology. But the title, you'll have to listen to it to find out what the title is. Because the title is in the message. But I'm not going to give that to you. You'll have to listen to find out. So I would highly, highly recommend listening to that. A couple of books that are really good to read is this one right here is Dispensationalism. It's about 100 pages, a little bit longer. Easy read, very good by Michael Vlock. He's one of my main sources. Uh, we'll probably talk a little bit about the millennials, pre, all, and post as we go through the covenants. This is Premillennialism by Michael Vlock. Excellent book, 110 pages. Outstanding. If you've really got the fever to read, here's another book by Michael Block that's a lot bigger. It's called He Will Reign Forever. But again, in all these, all these covenants are behind all these books and the storyline in the Bible. And then I had this book last week. If you really want to get into it, the words of the covenants. Just a phenomenal, phenomenal book. And actually, since covenants are so important. It would be a great field of study for you to endeavor to undertake. So just a quick review of last week before we move on into uh, today, just to get your mind kind of going again. We talked about the use of the word covenant, how we use it today. We talked about some of those examples. Uh, we looked at the definitions. We defined covenant and we defined promise. We looked at the differences. Uh, we looked at the biblical usage, which is massive. If you remember in the NASB, the word covenant is used 321 times from Genesis to Revelation. 
occurs in 27 of the 39 Old Testament books and 11 of the 27 New Testament books. Covenants are prominent in the Bible. They have a main role. Uh, the entirety of human history are dictated by God's covenants. The entirety of human history is dictated by God's covenants. The covenants of Yahweh set out the unfolding storyline of the Bible. What is going on in the world right now is ordered and dictated by God's covenants. And all of us have a lens or framework through which we interpret the Bible, the biblical narrative. And so I went over those last week. I kind of wrote them up here on the board, and this is pretty weak. This black is pretty weak. So one we talked about is covenant theology, covenantalism. That's one framework that people look at the biblical narrative through, covenantalism. And it's driven by three theologically derived covenants. So those covenants are not specifically entered into or made in the biblical text. They are derived theologically. Covenant of works, covenant of grace, covenant of redemption. And I think you need to know that hermeneutics is huge in how you frame the Bible and how you understand its narrative. And so covenant theology actually uses a combo of literal and allegorical uh, spiritualizing of the text. And covenant the theologians, when they get to a prophetic text in which about 25% of the Bible is prophecy. Do you know that? 25% of the Bible is prophecy. That's huge. So just a question for you to think about. Do you spend 25% of your Bible reading meditating time on prophecy? 25% of the Bible is prophecy. So are you spending that much time on prophecy? Because it's pretty important. In fact, it's real important. So when it comes to prophetic scriptures, covenantal theologians see them allegorically or spiritual, they spiritualize them, and they see like the fulfillment of the promises for Israel in Christ or 70 AD. You can think about that. Dispensationalism we talked about is I'm going to focus more on progressive dispensationalism because that's the camp uh, our church would be in, our sister churches would be in. That'd be the camp that I would be in is progressive dispensationalism. And its features are an historic, literal, grammatical hermeneutic. So that means it just interprets the scripture literally according to normal grammatical principles. And the three features of progressive dispensationalism are ecclesiology, which is the church, eschatology, which is last thing, and then the principles of interpretation. That would be the three things that really define progressive dispensationalism. Most people, when they think of dispensationalism, think of the seven dispensations, the seven eras of time where God's different economies on how he related to man. So the main difference between these two frameworks, which is basically how all Christians look at Scripture, through one or the other, whether you realize it or not, and so most likely the way you look at scripture is how you've been taught if you was raised in a covenantal church you would look at it this way if you was raised in a dispensational church you would look at it this way pretty much the only two camps so the main difference is the storyline 
and principles of interpretation. Storyline, covenantalists see the promises to Israel as being fulfilled in Christ and the church. Christ and the church, where progressive dispensationalists see the promise to Israel and the future of Israel is to be actually fulfilled as the Old Testament prophets said. So huge difference. Huge difference. Dispensationalists would be premillennial, and covenant theologians would either be all mill or post mill. Okay. Premillennial in the in the Revelation, I think it's chapter it's chapter twenty. Have to look. Anyway, the word millennia appears seven times, thousand years, thousand years. So premillennials, which is what we are, believe that Christ is going to come back to the earth prior to this thousand year reign and he's going to be on earth and reign as king of the earth from Jerusalem for 1,000 years. Premillennials. And all millennials is easy to understand. All is the alpha negative. All means no, none. So all millennials, there's no millennium. There's no thousand year reign. That Jesus Christ is actually reigning right now on David's throne from heaven. So premillennials believe that Christ will come back and reign on David's throne from Jerusalem for a thousand years. All millennials believe there is no millennium, that when the end of the age is over, Christ will come back. There'll be the judgment and eternity. Okay? Postmillennials believe that, uh, let's see if I can get this right. My tablet, <coughs> Russell, help me here. Postmillennials believe that the kingdom is. The millennium is happening right now, although it's not, so they believe in a millennium. It's happening right now. It's not a thousand years, so they spiritualize that. But it is happening right now, and then Christ will come back at the end of the age, like all millennials believe, and that'll be it. There'll be no thousand year reign. Okay? Everybody confused? <coughs> but all that's derived <laughs> on how you interpret the covenants. How you interpret the covenants. Covenants of prophecy. So I thought I would read a uh, good definition of progressive dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is a system of theology primarily concerned with the doctrines of ecclesiology. That's a doctrine of the church. And so the reason there's a difference here is, is because covenant theologians see a blending of Israel and the church into one unit. So the church basically uh, absorbs Israel and inherits, inherits the promises of Israel. And so you may have heard of such things as replacement theology or supersessionism, those kind of terms. That's from covenant theology. Progressive dispensationalists believe that the promises for Israel are in fact true, and Israel will again be in the land, which they are, by the way, and that they will become God's main feature in governing the world, taking the gospel to the world when Christ returns and governs the world for a thousand years. So big difference. They see Israel and the church remaining separate entities. 
They maintain their distinctness. Now, there are believing Jews that will be part of the church, but Israel and the church remain distinctive entities. Dispensationalism and covenantalism, they become one. So, dispensationalism is a system of theology primarily concerned with the doctrines of the church and eschatology, which is last things, of which those two frameworks disagree mightily on, that emphasizes applying historical grammatical hermeneutics to all passages of Scripture, including the entire Old Testament. So what covenant theology ends up doing is using the New Testament to reinterpret what the Old Testament said. And so actually, uh, another difference is covenant theology prioritizes the New Testament over the Old Testament where dispensationalism sees both testaments on an equal basis footing. Uh, Continue the dispensational uh, definition. It affirms the distinction between Israel and the church and a future salvation and restoration of the nation Israel in a future earthly kingdom under Jesus the Messiah as a basis for a worldwide kingdom that brings blessings to all nations. That would be a definition of dispensationalism. Okay, yes. If there's anything you guys want, then just let me know, and I can, I, I'll be glad to get it to you, let you know. Dispensationalism is a system of theology primarily concerned. I think this is important because we think of dispensations. Most people think of the seven dispensations, seven epics or errors of time. It is a system of theology primarily concerned with the doctrines of ecclesiology, that's a doctrine of the church, eschatology, that's a doctrine of last things. It emphasizes applying historical, grammatical hermeneutics to all passages of Scripture, including the entire Old Testament. It affirms the distinction between Israel and the church and a future salvation and restoration of the nation Israel in a future earthly kingdom under Jesus the Messiah as a basis for a worldwide kingdom that brings blessings to all nations. And that is the millennial reign, what's known as the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign that's spoken of in, in Revelation. Okay, so we have great men of God in both camps. Great men of God. Wonderful men of God. Many of whom I listen to on a regular basis. But they have a major disagreement on ecclesiology, hermeneutics, and eschatology. Interesting. Any other questions or thoughts at this point? I'm going to give a definition of biblical covenantalism and that's part of progressive dispensationalism this is a definition of biblical covenantalism the covenant oaths found plainly within the pages of our bible okay biblical covenants are the covenant oaths found plainly in the pages of our bible so that's what defines the difference between a biblical covenant 
in a theologically derived covenant. A biblical covenant is found plainly in the pages of Scripture. It's something where the word covenant is used and some phraseology, which we'll talk about, is used where you enter or make or confirm a covenant. And more particularly, the covenants of God compose together the main argument of Scripture. I think this is very important then. They, that's the covenants, pick up and forward creation's teleology. Now that might be a word you've not, you're not familiar with, teleology. But in creation there is a teleology. And that is the doctrine of design and purpose to reach a purposed end or goal. So in creation, God made a design and purpose to reach a purpose, end, and goal. That's teleology. That's all confirmed in the covenants. The teleology of scripture, design and purpose, and goal is all driven by the covenants. And eschatology, which is the final thing. Every teaching of scripture is subordinated to the divine covenants. Every teaching of scripture is subordinated to the divine covenants. That is huge. So the next thing I want us to look at then is the features of a covenant. How do we know a covenant is a covenant? The covenants of God always handle the big determinative issues. For example, the flood and the continuity of nature, Israel and the nations, the kingdom, redemption, earthly renewal, the reconciliation of all things to God, the storyline of the Bible. The central pillars of the Bible are governed by covenants. Covenants are more than pillars, they're signposts. And they almost always are totally ignored or else given a subordinate role in most of our own theological systems today in our thoughts and processes. Let's talk about the features of a, of a biblical covenant. The first feature is phraseology. Phraseology. So I want us to look a little bit at that. Let's turn our Bibles to Jeremiah 34.10. You need to be able to recognize uh, a covenant. And so there's phrase, phraseology, phrases that are associated with when a covenant is made. So let's turn to Isaiah 34.10. Did you say Jeremiah? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Okay. I'm sorry. I was thinking, I was trying to multitask in my brain. <laughs> and I was thinking of Isaiah 42.6, which you talked about last week, which I'm going to, while you're looking, just remember Isaiah 42.6, Jesus Christ is a covenant to the nations probably one of the most important scriptures in the entire Bible. It's one of the least known. It was Isaiah 42, 6 from last week. The servant of Yahweh, Jesus Christ, is a covenant to the nations. So anyway, in Jeremiah 34, 10, it says, Now when all the princes and all the people who had entered into the covenant. So we see that a phrase that you can find about covenants is you enter into a covenant. You enter into a covenant. So entering a covenant is a phrase. Let's turn to Daniel 9.27. 
Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And here Daniel is prophesying regarding the Antichrist and the end time and his relationship with uh, Israel. Daniel, 70 weeks. Verse 27, speaking of the Antichrist, then he shall confirm a covenant. He shall confirm a covenant. Yours might say impose by force. It might say prevail. But it's a, a strong term. Here the Antichrist is going to by force enter into a covenant. He's going to confirm. He's going to prevail by force with Israel. Uh, let's turn to a very common one, Genesis 6.18. God's covenant with Noah. He says, but I will establish my covenant with you. Very specific language. I will establish my covenant with you. Let's turn over to Genesis 17, 2. Here God is speaking to Abraham, Genesis 17, 2. And I will make my covenant between me and you. So here God is making a covenant. Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 23. Verse 5. Verse 5 says, Oh, my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant. This is David speaking. We'll talk about this covenant here in a little bit. He has made with me an everlasting covenant. And let's turn to Psalm 111, verse 9. Psalm 111, verse 9. We see that also that God commands his covenant. God commands his covenant. Psalm 111 verse 9 says, He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. So when you see biblical covenants, you see certain phraseologies that you enter, you impose, you confirm, you establish, you make, you give, you command. All those phrases are associated with biblical covenants. So if it's a biblical covenant, you can be assured that those will be there. Another feature of a biblical covenant is pledges. Pledges. Occasionally, parties offer a pledge or gift. So let's go to 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 4. Hey, Dave, yes. I have a question back um, on the 2 Samuel 23, 5. When it talks about it being an everlasting covenant, uh -huh. however, there are... We're talking about seven different dispensations. So I guess I'm kind of confused. Yeah, first, 
Like, as it says, it's everlasting, but then there. Okay, the first thing I'll say is the Bible nowhere says there are seven dispensations. Okay. That is a theologically derived system. Seven seven dispensations is a theologically derived construct. There are not seven dispensations specifically mentioned in the Bible. So dispensationalists, when they frame the storyline of the Bible, they they divide it into, it varies a little bit depending which dispensational camp you're in, but the common number is seven. So one, I don't have them with me, but one would be like before the fall, and then between the fall and the Mosaic Law, because that was the way God dealt with Adam and Eve was different than the way he dealt with man after the fall, which was different than the way he dealt with man when the law was introduced. That's another dispensation. Then you have the period of grace when Christ came. God deals with men different. So those seven dispensations are how God has dealt with man throughout history and has changed depending upon the economy of God for that particular era of time. But that's all theologically derived. That's nowhere mentioned in the Bible. So the dispensations are like these covenants. They're theologically derived. They're not mentioned in the Bible. So what was the second part of your question? I don't know. <laughs> 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 all of this is really over my head. <laughs> I guess that it's hard to, uh, it's really all over my head. No, it's a great question. It was about dispensations. I got off on that and then I forgot what you're well, it's everlasting. Well, well, oh, everlasting. It's the everlasting yeah. covenant, but well, the covenants. Even if you even if you accept dispensations, the covenants overarch dispensations. They're everlasting, so they will last through all of dispensations. Now, dispensations do not uh, negate the covenants. The covenants rule the dispensations, not the other way around. If you're a dispensationalist, the covenants rule the dispensations not the other way around. Now, does that make sense? It's getting there. <laughs> um, I have a question, but I can't put it together yet. Oh, that may be answered your own question. Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions while we're here? It's, it's such a vast subject and so so deep, so much so much breadth to it that I'm trying to get a lot into a short frame frame of time. So if you're not familiar with this, I'm sure it's but it's something we ought to be very familiar with, very familiar with. It's what's driving the storyline. It's what's driving history right now. The covenants of God are driving history right now. That doesn't mean that every. Uh, <coughs> doesn't mean that every headline is a prophetic fulfillment. Please understand that. That is a great weakness of some, what I would call, uh, over-the-top dispensationalists. Every headline is a prophetic fulfillment. No. Every headline is not a prophetic fulfillment. Can I ask another question? Yes. Sorry. So, really, all this is still over my head, but still, like, you talk about how God deals with people in different ways throughout time. So does that mean like God is changing in those things? Because we know no. that God is unchanging. Right. So uh, I 
don't know, I have a hard time reconciling that in my mind. Yeah, God is immutable. Right. He's immutable. That doesn't mean he can't deal differently. How he administers things can be different. Obviously they are. For example, in the Mosaic Law, under that particular, you could call it dispensation or era, people, his people were bound by the law. Well, we're not bound by the law today as Christians. But God still hasn't changed. But the way he dealt with his people, pre-Christ and after Christ, is different. Because Christ fulfilled the law and some of the uh, structures of the covenant, so we are under grace today and not under the law. But God hasn't changed. That was God's original plan from the beginning. <clears throat> One way to look at it is the way God has dealt with mankind from creation till now, till the end of time, God originally planned. So he hadn't changed. He's doing exactly what he intended to do from the very beginning. In fact, from before creation. So he's administering things progressively. So if you look at scripture, scripture is actually progressive revelation. Adam and Eve did not have near the revelation we have. Neither did Moses. Neither did Isaiah. Neither did David or Abraham. So there is something called progressive revelation, which as time has went along and the Bible was written, we have more revelation. So we know more and we can understand more because we have more to know and understand. But God didn't change. So I know you would think if God's dealing different with different with people differently over time, God's changing. But no, God has not changed. God had determined eternity past that this is how I'm going to do it. And he's been consistently doing that without exception. Hmm. Dave, didn't you say that uh, progressive dis dispensationalism uh, which were the covenants the literal covenants uh-huh. override the theological covenants did you say they were they were over it what I'm saying is it depends which camp you're in okay I'm not in that camp <laughs> I'm in the camp that says the biblical covenants override theologically derived covenants or theologically derived dispensations either one but, but saying that, you're saying that they override grace. No. No. Because grace is a part of the <coughs> biblical covenants. Every biblical covenant, an element of it is grace. Another element is salvation. Every biblical covenant. If what you're saying is the foundation for the believer is the word of God. Yes. Right? And that everything that we believe is based in our understanding of the Word of God. We don't take theological constructs and filter the Word of God through our theological constructs. But we have the Word of God, and from the Word of God we derive our theological constructs. I don't know if that helps. It's just a different way of putting it. That's very good. That's my assistant teacher. Maybe how we were raised or brought up, 
guess the question is, how do, how do you navigate those? Um, that is an excellent question, and Michael Block, who's a progressive dispensationalist, addresses that. So here's a guy that was raised Roman Catholic. At the age of 14, he got saved. And he got saved in a dispensational church at 14. So he was uh, raised from that point on to understand the biblical narrative from a dispensational framework. So he goes to school getting his uh, degree to become a, a preacher or a professor in biblical theology. And so he has to, he's honest, he has to determine is what I believe, which is what I was taught, is all I know, is that correct? Or is covenantalism correct? So he done an ex exhaustive study for himself. And one thing he said that I really like, he said, if you're going to do an honest critique of your opponent, you have to be fair. You have to be fair. Because the normal thing we do when we critique an opponent is we use straw men. I mean, that is just 99% of what we do normally when we critique our opponent or something we are opposed to is we use straw men because it's an easy argument, it's hard to argue against. It's easy to argue, hard to argue against. But it's unfair. So what you have to do is you have to critique both issues fairly, ethically, and determine for yourself. For Michael Block, he remained dispensationalist. But there's covenantals, obviously, that are still covenantals. I was thinking about this, too. So the hermeneutic, to answer Joe's question also, the hermeneutic influences your interpretation of the scripture. So if you yes. if you have if you presuppose a covenantal hermeneutic, then you're going to necessarily read scripture in light of that hermeneutic, like that interpretation. So if you presuppose covenant theology, then you're going to interpret scripture in those three covenants. And it's going to make sense because those three covenants are scripture, like scripture has those components in it although it's not like complete. And so the same thing with the dispensation side too. It's when you presuppose the dispensations, then you'll read scripture in light of those things instead of setting your biases aside and understanding that scripture scripture was written in whatever whatever fashion it was, whether it's poetry, whether it's history, whether it's narrative, whether it's um, the the epistles, whatever it is, you set those aside. You read the epistles as the epistles, and you interpret them in light of the type of text that they are, instead of what I would presuppose them the categories to fit into. Yeah, the question is, last week, if you remember, the bear tracks in the snow. I still think this is a great illustration. If you're walking out in the snow and you're across a bear track, you say, I'm gonna follow these bear tracks so I'm gonna see a bear. So you follow the bear track and you get to the end of the bear tracks, what do you expect to see? A bear. A bear. That's a literal hermeneutic. You follow those bear tracks and you get to the end of the tracks and you don't see a bear, but you see some allegory, allegory or a spiritualization of a bear. That's not what you expected. You expected to see a bear. For me, that's the clearest way, simplest way to understand the difference between these two frameworks. For example, in Israel, when we get to the, the covenants that we ever do, <laughs> if, 
if you was an Old Testament saint and you were reading Moses' writing of Genesis and you read Genesis chapter 12 through 21, how would you understand that? We got to remember, it was written to the Jews, probably during a wilderness wandering, probably when he wrote it, before the end of the promised land. So you read that about your father Abraham, who had existed 400 years prior, and his descendants, and these promises. How would you understand that? And I think that's what we got to remember. A literal, grammatical interpretation of Scripture is you read the Scripture as it was intended by the original author and received by the original audience. So if I was a Jew and I read that, I would say God is going to promise us blessings and land and a future Messiah and as many offspring as the sand of the sea everlastingly. Forever covenant. That's what I would expect. Go read it. You can hold Seth and go read it as a Jew in the wilderness Moses just wrote it and write down what you think those Jews thought and what they would expect. That's what dispensationalism does. Covenant theology spiritualizes that and says that was all fulfilled in Christ and there's no future for the seeds of Abraham and for Israel as a nation in the covenant and the kingdom plan of God. So, a huge difference is a storyline. Huge difference. If you have a literal hermeneutic, you're going to say there's a future for Israel as a nation. The Christ is going to come back and reign in Jerusalem, and the nation of Israel will be there. Paul says in Romans, the entire nation of Israel will be saved. Is that true or not? Is that a true statement, or is that an allegory? If you're a dispensationalist, you say that's a true statement. If you're a covenantalist, you say that's an allegory. And so I was raised a dispensation. That's all I knew. I didn't even know covenantal theology existed until a number of years ago. And there's some great covenant theologians that I love to listen to that are great. R.C. Sproul is one of them. He's a tremendous preacher, tremendous theologian. But he's in that, he's in this covenant theological covenantalism line, that's what he believes, so he and John MacArthur were best friends. One's a covenantalist, one's a dispensationalist. They didn't agree on that. So when R.C. died, John said, R.C. now understands the truth. <laughs> so I, th I, th I think a point to remember is uh, we have differences in hermeneutics and ecclesiology and eschatology, but we do not have differences in the gospel. And it's the gospel that saves. So that's the most important. So don't denigrate your covenantal friends. <laughs> Give them a little slack. Or if you're a covenantalist, don't denigrate your dispensational friends. Any other questions or comments? That help? That, that help in any? Yeah. I mean, just think about when you read the Old Testament. Are you taking it literally? When you read something in the Old Testament, are you taking it literally or are you allegorizing it? And I think most of us, if we didn't know anything, would take it literally. We'd read for what it says. 
One thing we have to be careful of is academia. Actually, academia can be a great, great blessing. It can also be a curse. Even in our saved state as reborn Christians, uh, our fallenness can enter in and sometimes we become, I don't know if I want to say this, how I want to say this, but I don't say too intellectual, but we've got to be careful that our intellect doesn't get carried away and take us in the wrong, wrong direction. Okay, any other thoughts? Okay, let's look at 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4. It's pledges. Pledges are made in covenants. Obviously, we think about the marriage covenant. There are certainly some very important pledges that are made. This one, particular one is in the Bible. Just want to show you just as an example. It's a feature of a covenant. First what? Uh, 1 Samuel 18. 1 through 4. So a very familiar story. It's uh, Jonathan, Saul, Jonathan, and David. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword, his bow, and his belt. So here we see a covenant between Jonathan and David, and Jonathan giving David some of his own stuff as a pledge of that covenant. So pledges are a part of a covenant. So are covenant signs. An occasional feature was a sign of a covenant, and the sign of a divine covenant was generally a repeatable memorial. And we will look at those as we cover each individual covenant, but could you think of some sign covenants right offhand? Rainbow. Rainbow is a sign of the covenant. Any more? Mm-hmm. Can you think of right offhand? Real common. Communion is a sign of the covenant? Yes. Absolutely. Jesus himself says that. What about circumcision? Circumcision is a sign of the covenant? Just for Jews. Mm-hmm. Sure is. So that's another feature of a covenant. Covenant have signs. Uh, covenants have witnesses. We're not going to turn there for the sake of time, but uh, 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 18, Jonathan David made a covenant with the Lord as the witness, before the Lord, the witness. Uh, Genesis 31, 50, Jacob and Laban made a covenant with God as our witness. God is our witness. So another feature of a covenant is witnesses. Uh, fifth feature is consequences. If you break a covenant, there are consequences. It can either be positive or negative. Uh, for example, in Deuteronomy 19.21, we will turn there for the sake of time, violators to define covenant or promise the curses of the covenant. So if you've never read Deuteronomy 29, you should do that because God pronounces curses on the people if you transgress the Mosaic Covenant. Divine curses, they're not pretty. Leviticus 26:25, God promises divine vengeance. Divine vengeance. So covenants have consequences. That's a feature of a covenant. Another feature of a covenant is conditionality. Conditionality. Covenants can either be conditional or unconditional, unilateral or bilateral. 
And we'll see that as we go through the particular covenants. Uh, parties or members then are features of covenant. There are covenants between God and man. There are covenants between man and man. We just saw that, Jonathan David. There is also a covenant in the Bible between man and a body part. Anybody familiar with that covenant? A man made a covenant with one of his body parts. Anybody know where that's at? Yeah, who was it? David? No. I just right. Jeremiah. 30, chapter 31, verse 1. Job. Oh, Job. 31-1. So did you know you can make a covenant with any your body as a whole or any body part? You can do that. Job did. Probably a pretty good idea. Job 31.1, he made a covenant. He made a covenant with his eyes, Job did. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? So basically it was a covenant of purity toward women. Okay, so Job made a covenant of purity toward women. That's, we can make a covenant <coughs> towards other people unilaterally, ourselves. It doesn't have to be bilateral. We can make our own personal covenants. Has biblical precedence. And an eighth feature of a covenant is the oath. The covenant oath. It is the decisive ingredient in any covenant. And a couple of important points I thought to consider was there are no other nation's gods involved themselves with covenantal obligations. Think about that. No other nation's gods obligated themselves with covenantal obligations. Yahweh was the only God who was entering covenants. Yahweh. Lots of reasons for that, I'm sure. And then another item to think about is a very important item to consider and think about as we now delve into the biblical covenants is this. What attributes of God are necessary involved in front and center in biblical covenants. So when you think about biblical covenants, what attributes of God are necessary? And when you think about covenants, do you ever think about God and the nature of God and the necessity of God for those covenants to actually be and enforce and exist and last forever? Or are they not necessary? Is the nature of God at stake? And what part of his nature at stake? Okay, so let's just talk about that. We've got five minutes. And this will be the last thing before we actually get to the covenants. What attributes of God do you think are necessary for a biblical covenant? And there's 20-some attributes. Omniscience. Omniscience. Exactly. You mentioned earlier his immutability. Absolutely. Constant. Immutability. If God's going to make an eternal, everlasting covenant, <clears throat> he has to be immutable. He cannot change. Eternality. 
eternality is huge. Can't make an eternal covenant without being eternal, can you? Eternality. What other attributes do you think might be necessary? What about his aseity? God's aseity. His self-existence. His self-existence. He's dependent on no one. God is dependent on anyone that he make a unilateral, unconditional, eternal covenant. Yes. Because he is the chiefest being. Because he yes. Is, because of he that. Has a say he, he because he has a say it. He can only. He does. Take oaths on his own character. Exactly. I'm gonna go out on a limb. I didn't know RC. You don't have a, you don't have, you don't have a saw with you, do you? Huh? <laughs> well, no. I mean, I just, there it says RC. After the fall, the condition of the Lord's covenant from with man are ultimately met by God Himself. God swears that he will keep his conditions of his covenant with Abraham and will bear the consequences of Abraham's breaking it. When I was looking at that, I was thinking of Adam and sinning. When you said it always points to Jesus Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of that new covenant. When I was younger, we was always old covenant based, I believe. And that's one of the reasons why my mom left when we went and, and things split up. I'm starting to see it now. Yeah. Explaining it. Good. Or a dummy like me. I don't got it yet, but I'm getting it. You're getting it? That's good. We're making progress. <laughs> okay, any other any other thank you, Matt, for sharing that. That's good. Any other um, attributes you can think of that are involved? What about his omnipotence? What if he didn't have the power to bring the covenant about? I mean, what if you or I tried to make the same covenant God made to Abraham? No chance. No chance. <clears throat> There's hardly an attribute of God that's not involved in a covenant. But I just want you to remember that. Almost the entirety of the nature of God is involved in a covenant. It's huge. So real quick, real quick, we have a couple minutes. There are six biblical covenants. Tell me what they are. These are not theologically derived. These are biblical covenants. Noah, it would be one. Okay, the Noahic. And I mean, third, maybe. <coughs> okay, hold on. I'm going to hold this. Hold your comment just a minute. Noahic. There's also, and you brought up last week, the Adamic or the Edenic, Edenic covenant. <coughs> There are a few dispensations hold to the Adamic or the Edenic covenant. That God made a covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Uh, that's a theologically derived covenant. It's not a biblical covenant. It's theologically derived. Then the dispensational camp, there are a few dispensations hold to it. Probably the most prominent one was S. Lewis Johnson. 
many of you guys have ever heard of him. If you haven't, you should be listening to him. He is a tremendous dead preacher. Dead preacher. But some dispensationalists hold to an Adamic or Edenic covenant that God made with Adam, a conditional covenant in the garden, which obviously he broke. <clears throat> but there's not, that is not a specific covenant, biblical covenant, it's a theologically derived covenant. Okay, does somebody say Abrahamic? Okay, four more. Mosaic. Mosaic. All right. Mosaic. Two more. Covenant of grace. What's that? Covenant of grace. Covenant of grace. <laughs> well, it's close. <clears throat> it contains a lot of grace. Massive. Number six, number four, number six. Biblical covenants. Anybody? Two more. New covenant. Yes. Huge. We're going to partake of that new covenant here in just a little bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We sure are. We are part of the new covenant. <clears throat> One more. <sighs> Russell knows, but I bet nobody else knows. I can't remember it. Actually. Oh, you can't remember it? <laughs> <clears throat> this is probably this is the unknown covenant, but it is a covenant. Joe and Allison, you two should know this one for sure. The priestly or Phineas covenant. It is a real, true, biblical covenant. It's an everlasting covenant. Incredible covenant. Priestly, Phineas covenant. Anybody remember that story? After it happened, God made the everlasting covenant with Phineas. <clears throat> well, we're way past time. Rick's back next week, so I'm going to talk to him on whether he'll let me finish or whether he'll take back over, and then I can finish next time he's gone and see what he says. He's the boss. He's probably pretty amicable, though. Probably let me finish. I bet he will. I bet he will. Yeah, I'll bet he will. Yeah. So anyway, if he does, we'll be starting out on the Noah Covenant. Your assignment is find the priestly covenant know what that is when you come next week great story great story okay